0: Hey there, and welcome to the podcast for Monday, February 22nd. Coming up, the Supreme Court in the UK rules that Uber drivers are workers, not contractors. What does this ruling mean? Will it affect drivers here in Canada? Plus, United removing all Boeing 777 airplanes from service, and Canada's quarantine hotels go into effect beginning today. We'll have the very latest all coming up on the podcast right now. Okay, the Supreme Court in the U.K. has ruled that Uber drivers are not, or are workers, I'm sorry, they're workers, they're not contractors, and this is a decision that could have worldwide implications. And joining us now for more on this is employment lawyer Lior Zamfiro. He joins us here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Lior, good afternoon. Thanks for having me on, Jeff. Hey, appreciate being here as always. Uh, first of all, break down the decision if you could for us, Lior. Why did the UK's highest court rule the way they did?
1: Well, the UK court was very, very clear that this comes down to control. It comes down to the control that Uber, the company, has over the drivers. Uber decides where they go, how much they get paid, Uber decides what their car uh, has to be, what insurance they have penalizes them if it feels that they're not doing a good job, that control factor is what made the court say, well, no, these guys, these drivers are not independent contractors. They're not in business for themselves. They are truly and really employees of Uber. Uber cannot exert this control, effectively control the whole process and say, well, no, no, you're not our employees. You cannot have it both ways. And that's what the court was very clear about.
0: You know, that's really interesting, Leor. the way they broke that down as a matter or an issue of control. Is that typically how we decide if somebody is kind of, quote-unquote, a a worker or a full-time employee as opposed to a self-employed contractor?
1: It is probably the biggest factor. At the end of the day, what we care about is that reality on the ground, the reality between the company and the individual. Anyone can sign a piece of paper that says, I am a contractor. Anyone can can say that. That doesn't change the legal definition of what you are. If you look like an employee and act like an employee, you are an employee. And deciding that someone is an employee oftentimes comes down to control. An employee has to follow what their company, what their boss says. An employee can't just decide whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it. There's rules, there's consequences for not following the rules. That is all about control. And ultimately, the court said that if we apply this model to Uber drivers, it starts looking like an employment relationship. The fact that they say that they're not, or Uber very much wants them not to be employees, doesn't change that reality on the ground.
0: All right, so overall, what does this mean for Uber drivers, Lior? I mean, is this a good decision for them? Is this welcome news?
1: Well, certainly for for those that believe that they should be treated like employees, that they should have rights, like overtime, like minimum wage, like vacation pay, it is great news because ultimately it's simply another indication that that is the reality. And and it's very difficult for me and I think for most people to think that in Canada and Ontario – the result will be different. The way the drivers here are treated by Uber is very similar, if not identical to the way it is in the UK. The law ultimately is the same. So I think that this is an indication of where these things are going. This is not the first uh, decision made where these individuals have been found to be employees. It's, It's the highest court, but it's not the first decision. So I think it's just a matter of time before the same finding uh, happens here in Ontario. Right now we have a case that's going to court uh, later this, uh, this spring in June. And I do think that ultimately at the conclusion of that legal process, we're going to be talking about the same thing that they're talking about in the UK. Uber drivers are employees, and now Uber's going to have to change the way it operates to ensure that it provides its entitlements to those drivers.
0: Okay, so you believe this will, this decision by the U.K. Supreme Court, have implications here in Canada? And do you think that drivers here in Ontario and really right around the world, are they going to have to go that far when it comes to their battle against Uber? Or do you think this decision out of the U.K. is going to make Uber as a company just change overall?
1: It's not going to do that. Uber is going to fight. Uh, tooth and nail in Ontario and every other jurisdiction and and frankly I don't know that it's because it truly believes that it's going to be successful it has its own reasons as to why it's doing that so unfortunately this is not going to mean that the process gets shortened but I think it does mean that the result ultimately is obvious and clear and that is that the the courts here will find very similar to they did to what they did in the UK that they're drivers, that they're employees. It may take a while, unfortunately, but the result is going to be the same.
0: All right. What about other divisions of Uber? I'm thinking, Lior, specifically of Uber Eats. Could this decision uh, affect them?
1: Absolutely. At the end of the day, how how Uber operates across its divisions is very similar. And and that concept of control that we talked about applies in those situations. Uber decides everything from A to Z. Uh, and, And it really is that clear So I think that all of Uber's operations, when it's all said and done, are gonna have to be reconfigured to allow for employment, to ensure that these drivers, well, Uber's ultimately gonna have to make a choice. Either it says, well, we're not gonna exert the same level of controls, and maybe then we actually have independent contractors, or we wanna maintain control, fine. In which case, now we have employees, now we have all these entitlements and obligations that we have to provide to these individuals, but it can't have it both ways. It's going to have to choose one path and go with it.
0: So do you think that this radically changes the business model, not only for Uber, but perhaps for the overall kind of quote-unquote shared economy that uh, everybody talks about and points to when it, when it comes to Uber?
1: Absolutely. It's not a an Uber-only issue. Uh, the gig economy, those uh, companies that operate in that space, Uh, They're going to have to take note and they're going to have to understand that right now Uber is in the spotlight, but this is a bigger issue. And they're going to have to make the same decision that Uber is going to have to make, control or have employees. So I think in a year, perhaps two years, you know, the legal process is not known for its uh, speed. We're going to be seeing all these companies have to operate differently and and choose a path and go with that
0: path. Okay, those are the companies. Just finally, what about the employees, which is what, again, this U.K. Supreme Court has decided that uh, Uber drivers are indeed workers or employees, not contractors. Do you think that this uh, decision, is it going to make people think twice about being an independent contractor? Uh, are there situations where that is beneficial that you're seen more as a contractor than you are an employee?
1: Well, there's certainly tax implications that are – that. that could be favorable if you truly are an independent contractor. But I think that the problem here is that it cuts both ways. If you as an individual say that you're an independent contractor and you pay your taxes and and file your taxes as an independent contractor, but you're actually not, you truly are an employee and you've been misclassified. Well, here in Canada, the CRA is gonna at some point look at this and say, well, no, you've been misclassified. You haven't been filing your taxes right. There may be back taxes and penalties. So even for the individual, it's not as simple as saying, well, let me just save a bunch of money on taxes. If you don't do this right, if you're not paying attention to the reality of the relationship, you may have consequences as well.
0: All right. Interesting stuff. Lior, appreciate the time and the insight as always. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Jeff. All right. Lior Sanfiro, employment lawyer. Well, Boeing has asked airlines to ground the 777 aircraft after an engine an engine blew apart after takeoff over Denver on Saturday. For more on this, here is aviation expert Todd Curtis. He's with airsafe.com, and he joins us here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Todd, nice to have you back on. Good afternoon. Well, thanks for having me, Jeff. All right. uh, First off, uh, the video is uh, quite startling uh, to watch. For those that haven't seen it, can you explain to us just exactly what happened over Denver the other
2: day? Well, shortly after takeoff, uh, United 747, excuse me, 777, had what's called an uncontained engine failure. That is, there was some sort of failure, exactly what hasn't been determined, that led to a loss of parts of uh, the engine, including the howling that covers the engine. And what a passenger videotaped from inside the aircraft was uh, quite stunning. Uh, you could see the aircraft engine on fire. You can see the panels missing from the engine. And you can see the fan at the front of the engine still turning, and the engine itself was vibrating on the wing. So this was very definitely a problem that required a, a declaration of an emergency by the flight crew, and they immediately turned, returned to Denver, and thankfully, no one on board the aircraft or on the ground was injured.
0: You know, I could only imagine being that passenger who uh, filmed that outside uh, their window. I mean, just uh, how startled uh, you would be, just uh, how concerned you would be. Uh, How in danger do we know uh, was this uh, plane? I mean, you don't want to ever lose an engine, but uh, was the plane in uh, some real peril here, do you think?
2: Well, anytime you have an uncontained engine failure, there can be obvious problems, such as what the video showed. And there can be other problems that may not be obvious at first to the crew. Specifically, you could have parts fly off of the engine, specifically various kinds of fan blades, that could penetrate the fuselage and cause damage to other systems. And this is somewhat complicated by the fact that the two pilots in the cockpit literally can't turn their heads around and see the engine from the cockpit. They have to rely on reports from the ground, reports from the cabin, and especially from their instruments. And there's a very specific set of procedures they go through when they have a suspected engine problem and they apparently did those procedures quite successfully.
0: Now, what about uh, before uh, takeoff? I mean, we're all uh, somewhat familiar with, of course, the inspection of an airplane, uh, workers uh, all around it uh, as we aboard uh, the uh, plane. But is this something that uh, should have been or could have been uh, caught on visual inspection or inspection by uh, the crew before takeoff?
2: Well, there is currently a rather uh, intense investigation being led by the NTSB right now. And I'm not sure if this will be on the level of a major accident investigation, but certainly there are a lot of resources being poured into answering exactly that question. Why did this happen? What were the things that led up to this? And were there opportunities, either from the maintenance side or the pre-flight check side, or even from the manufacturing side from when this aircraft engine was made, that could have prevented this? And that answer may be forthcoming, but it may be several months, perhaps even over a year before that happens.
0: Now, Todd, uh, somewhat interesting, uh, you're a former Boeing engineer. Uh, Do you think that there's any sort of problems in the design of uh, the Boeing 777? Or is there uh, something structurally uh, just wrong here? Or is this maybe just kind of a a one-off?
2: Well, first off, let me uh, just have some uh, full disclosure here. I was a safety engineer at Boeing during the 1990s, and one of the major... Projects my department did was to assist in the development of the 777. So during that development, I was quite familiar with the kind of changes that were made to the designs of aircraft in order to make it safer uh, with respect to being protected from this kind of failure. And I'll just say that among the many things that were required was that we had a worst-case scenario. That is, what if you have an engine failure where the biggest fan disk at the front of the aircraft a chunk the size of roughly a third of the disc, what if that had infinite energy and sliced right through the the fuselage? Could the aircraft keep flying? And the design criteria at Boeing was such that that catastrophe could happen and the aircraft was still designed to safely land. Now, luckily that didn't happen, but that just goes to show that not just with Boeing, but with aircraft uh, designers around the world, airliner uh, designers uh, such as Airbus, There are very high criteria. Another criteria is any engine, the most critical engine, could fail at the most critical part of flight, which is typically a takeoff, and the airplane should still be able to take off, circle around, and land safely on even one engine. So the 777, as is other modern airliners, are heavily designed to anticipate this kind of problem.
0: All right, so having said that, the uh, 777 uh, has been grounded for now. Does that affect any aircraft, any air flight uh, here in Canada, do you know? And just how soon would you expect the uh, 777 to be back in service?
2: Well, the uh, emergency uh, airworthiness directive from the FAA legally only applies to U.S.-registered aircraft, but typically other aviation authorities, including Transport Canada, would follow the FAA's lead at present. To the best of my knowledge, there are no Canadian carriers who have a 777 powered by this particular kind of engine. Air Canada has a number of 777s. They're powered by a general electric engine. And uh, this is an opportunity to point out that uh, almost nine years ago, there was a somewhat similar event over Toronto, an Air Canada 777 took off. There was an engine failure, parts sprayed out of the engine and fell on the uh, ground below and luckily no one was injured. So these kinds of events, very rare, and fortunately in the case of the Air Canada event and the United event, it didn't lead to any deaths or or injuries, but it's something that is a safety concern to not just the FAA and the NTSB, but to airlines and aircraft operators around the world.
0: And uh, finally, uh, Todd, let me ask you just about Boeing uh, itself, because this is the second time in as many years that there's been a problem with a Boeing uh, aircraft. Of course, uh, they made all kinds of news with the 737 uh, MAX when uh, you know it had problems uh, after takeoff going into a, a fatal uh, nosedive back in 2019. Now we've got this here over the weekend. Should travelers, should flyers, should they be concerned, do you think, about getting on a Boeing aircraft?
2: I think travelers should pay close attention to what happens with this investigation. Now, I personally think from my professional experience within Boeing and outside of Boeing, that what happened to 737 Max, those two crashes, and what happened in Denver probably have very little to do with each other. If for no other reason, then the 737 Max problem wasn't a question of the engine having an uncontained failure, but a more subtle kind of issue with the design and operation of that. That said. This is an opportunity for the governments involved to see if there is any connection between what happened with the 737 MAX and what happened in Denver. And if there is a connection that is discovered, that would be a concern for the average traveler, myself included. But so far, there's no such connection.
0: All right. Todd Curtis with AirSafe.com. Todd, really appreciate your expertise and your time with us this afternoon. Thanks so much for updating us.
2: Thanks again for having me.
0: As we've been talking about throughout the afternoon, today is day 1 of the new travel regulations for Canada, a suite of new measures that are meant to prevent those contagious variants from entering the country. And for more on this, we are joined now by travel expert Marty Firestone, president of Travel Secure. He joins us here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Marty, how are you?
3: Very good, thank you. How are you?
0: Doing okay. Uh, Day one, how are they doing, though, at the uh, airports right now? We're hearing that there's a lot of chaos, uh, Marty, when it comes to travelers looking to book one of these government-designated hotels for quarantine. Yeah, I say, how
3: do you spell mess? It is just that and then some. And only going to get worse. It appears this ability to book this non-refundable three-day hotel stay is a six- to ten-hour exercise, and it's frustrating a lot of people.
0: Yeah. Is it true that it's impossible to book online? I mean, in a day and an age where we're used to using things like Expedia and booking travel uh, online, you cannot book one of these government approved hotels online. You've got to call, make a phone call.
3: My exact point This in an age of technology, it is hard to believe you couldn't go on, you know, 24-7 to just go on and book your spot, get your confirmation, and then be done with it. No, you have to sit on the phone, and at best now it's a three-hour wait, and then people are getting just cut off for no reason whatsoever and starting all over again.
0: All right, and have you heard what's happening uh, when it comes to uh, the price of these uh, hotels? Because we're hearing now, uh, Marty, on day one, there's some fluctuating rates. Yeah, so...
3: The the good news, if that's anything, a little light at the end of the tunnel, there is no $2,000 per person. I don't know why it was ever set, other than to instill fear. The fact of the matter is, while they vary a couple dollars here and there, this is the bottom line. $350 for a single occupancy per night, plus tax, and $500 for double occupancy. So when you think about it, initially it was proposed $2,000 per person. There was no question. Is it one room, two rooms? You thought you were paying four grand if you and your wife were coming back. Now it's going to be at worst five hundred times three, fifteen hundred plus tax. So a little more palatable, I guess.
0: All right. And do we know if uh, the three day is a mandatory stay, or could your test come back after uh, one night and you be uh, released uh, to go to your own home to quarantine uh, for the rest of the fourteen days?
3: Yeah, so that's a great question. I suspect if it can be ready before, it will be and you'll be notified and you can leave. Will you get back any of your three-day hotel stay at this point? They seem to be harping on the words non-refundable. So I suspect you'll leave, but who would want to stay even if you paid? I'm sure the minute they let you get out, you're out of there.
0: Right. Uh, are there similar new requirements for those looking to get back into Canada via land crossing today? Because from what we understand, and I think you and I spoke about this uh, last time we were together, Marty, is that you still have to present a negative COVID test by land if you're using a land crossing, but you don't then have to go to a hotel?
3: Correct. So imagine everything identical except one key missing element, and that is that you do not have to go to the three-day hotel quarantine with 117 uh, Spots the Passover on the border, they could never implement uh, logistically hotel uh, quarantines at those spots. So, test uh, 72 hours in advance. Test when you get there, and then they hand you a packet for a test that you are to self-administer at day 10 of your quarantine, and then call a courier and get them to pick it up and take it from there.
0: All right. Seems to me, and I think to uh, many others, is this a significant loophole then, uh, Marty? Because I have to imagine many Canadians will alter their travel plans if they were thinking about returning to Canada by air. Wouldn't they rather fly into Buffalo or Detroit and then, I don't know, even take an Uber or uh, rent a car and come back over? 100%
3: that's the mentality of of many of the uh, client base that I speak to that they either have their cars down there that they had shipped down that typically they ship back won't ship back this year in fact will drive it back so that's going to avoid the hotel quarantine or others may fly to a border city and then make arrangements either to get picked up there from the Canadian side to come pick them up or rent a car and drive over to the Canadian side all those methods will get you out of that three day quarantine hotel.
0: All right. And are we thinking that maybe this is just kind of uh, opening day uh, problems and confusion, that this is going to get better as uh, time goes on when it comes to travelers coming back to one of these four Canadian airports, Vancouver, Calgary, Toronto or Montreal, and going to a uh, government approved quarantine in a hotel? Do we think this is going to get better in the next couple of days?
3: Well, I'll tell you what should get better is that if they do get the demand that they expect, they will add hotels as they can. So I remember when I started Thursday night checking this out, there were two hotels in the Toronto region. Now they're up to six. So that should help with getting the rooms available for people. The fact that you still have to do it on the line, on phone, as opposed to online, they've got to make a decision ASAP to get this opened up because people will get frustrated to no end. And if they don't show up with their arrive can, uh, paperwork having the confirmed reservation on it, they run the risk of a $3,000 fine right there.
0: Yeah, do we know what's happening to travelers who are arriving at Pearson or any of the other airports uh, today, and they do not have a hotel booked? From what we've heard at Pearson anyways, Marty, they're actually separating travelers, those upon arrival, into two different lines. And if you do not have a hotel booked, they're simply putting you on a bus and taking you to one of these hotels.
3: Yeah, and it's not one of the hotels of the six. It's a facility quarantine hotel, which is a whole different ballgame. So I've actually heard of someone that was presented with a $3,000 ticket because he had booked an Airbnb for his two-week quarantine stay, and that just did not work. That did not fall in the guidelines. It was not one of the six approved hotels. So he was given a $3,000 ticket. So I guess that's one choice, and the other choice is hop on the bus and be taken to a quarantine facility that is totally different than one of the six hotels that so far is available.
0: Just finally, uh, Marty, with these new restrictions in place as of today and for who knows how long, WestJet, of course, uh, announcing they're now cutting some more routes to four Canadian cities. We have a new Ipsos Global News poll out today suggesting that uh, Canadians are not in any hurry, although they'd probably like to go somewhere. They're thinking about probably not booking any air travel or any sort of travel plans into well uh, into 2021, probably 2022. I mean, is this shaping up 2021 to be just as painful as 2020 for the travel industry? It
3: looks like it. And I said back in November, I could write off 2020-2021 season, but I'm very much leaning towards that this summer is going to be no different. I think it falls into line with the previous year. And our best hopes now, I hate to say it, look towards 2022.
0: All right. Our travel expert, Marty Firestone, with us on this Monday. Marty, thanks as always. Appreciate the time.
3: Thank you very much. Take care.
0: You as well.